There is little doubt that one of the most interesting, controversial, and a constant source of ongoing speculation is the doctrine of the Antichrist. Indeed, there's been so much written about the Antichrist by Christians, both ancient and modern, and so many references made to the Antichrist in film and popular culture. It's vital that we go back to the biblical accounts of this mysterious and evil figure to separate biblical fact from speculative fiction. What does the Bible actually say about the coming Antichrist? Paul tackles the subject head-on in his second Thessalonian letter. Soon after the completion of his first Thessalonian letter, Paul received news that someone in the Thessalonian congregation was teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. If true, this meant that all of Christ's promises to his people have already been realized. It also reminds us that biblical prophecy pundits and speculators have been around for a long, long time. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians not to listen to such wild speculation because the day of the Lord has not yet come. Two things need to happen first. One is a great apostasy, and only then comes the revelation of a figure which Paul identifies as the man of sin. Either the apostasy creates the conditions necessary for the man of sin to be revealed, or the apostasy is closely connected to the man of sin's appearance. But Paul is clear about one thing. The day of the Lord has not come because these two things have not yet occurred when he writes this second letter. Paul also tells the Thessalonians that something is preventing the appearance of the man of sin, a mysterious restrainer, who, Paul says, at some point will cease to hold back the revelation of the man of sin, or the Antichrist, who will then be destroyed by Jesus when he returns. So join us then in this part one of our discussion of the man of sin as we tackle 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm Kim Rudelbarger, your host for this, the 13th episode of Season 2 of the Blessed Hope Podcast. Our current season, Season 2, is entitled, When the Lord Jesus is Revealed from Heaven. It's the study of Paul's two Thessalonian letters. In Part 1 of our study of 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1-12, to we will set the context for Paul's discussion of for a significant apostasy, which is tied to the revelation of the man of sin. We will discuss the nature of this apostasy as well as wrestle with the identity of the man of sin along with the timing of these events. Is Paul referring to the events in Jerusalem in AD 70? Or is he referring to a yet future series of events, an end times antichrist who is associated with the end of the age? Then, in part 2 of our study of 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12, which is episode 14 of season 2, we will discuss the identity of the mysterious restrainer to whom or to which Paul refers, and then we'll draw some conclusions about the doctrine of the Antichrist. How does the man of sin relate to John's teaching about the first century Antichrist already plaguing the churches in Asia Minor? How do these biblical figures relate to the beast of the book of Revelation? And how does Revelation 20 help us understand Paul's man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Do these three figures, 
John's Antichrist, the Beast of the Book of Revelation, and Paul's Man of Sin give us a composite picture of an end times Antichrist? Well, we'll address all these questions in part two of our discussion of 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. In this, part one of our two-part series on the man of sin, and Paul's discussion of this mysterious figure in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we start by reading the text before us, the first 12 verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul composes his second letter to the Thessalonians because of growing consternation within the congregation, which had arisen because someone was claiming that the day of the Lord had already come. Paul considers this an out-and-out falsehood, and responds by pointing out that the Thessalonians ought not be alarmed by this report, because the day of the Lord had not yet come. As Paul spells out here, there are two significant and closely related events which must precede that day, a rebellion, a time of great apostasy, and the appearance of a man of sin, or more precisely, the man of lawlessness. Therefore, says Paul, it is impossible for the day of the Lord to have already arrived, because the Lord is presently restraining the satanic forces behind these two events, so that neither of them have come to pass, and indeed cannot come to pass, until the Lord lifts his restraint at the time of the end. The first twelve verses of chapter 2 constitute the body or the heart of Paul's second letter, which directly addresses the question coming to Paul from Thessalonica via Timothy. Paul's opening comments in chapter 1 lead up to this section, and the concluding chapter 3 flows from it. An interesting feature of this letter is that Paul's concern is to refute erroneous teaching rather than provide 
additional instruction. In his first letter, he dealt with concerns about the fate of those who die before the Lord's return. To quote Ben Witherington, not only because some of their fellow believers had died, but also because in view of their ongoing suffering, they had begun to question whether they had been left out or left behind the glory train already passing them by. In the face of this deteriorating situation, Paul feels he must strike at the root of the problem a false claim about the timing of the day of the Lord. End of quote. Paul has already spoken in some detail regarding our Lord's return. We saw this in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, and in chapter 4, verse 13 through 511 of the first letter. But in the second letter, it becomes apparent that there's still difficulties in Thessalonica in fully understanding Paul's teaching about the Lord's parousia and its implications. No doubt this is due to Paul's forced and rapid departure from the city after a mere three weeks, preventing him from finishing his instruction or personally answering the questions that his teaching on the Lord's return might have raised within the congregation. As is his custom, Paul addresses the matter head-on in the opening verses of chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit, or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul opens with a reminder of what he's already taught them regarding the Lord's second advent. But when he speaks of believers being gathered together, we find yet another loud echo from Israel's history. According to Wanamaker, and I'm quoting, the concept of an eschatological gathering goes back to the Old Testament. The exilic prophets looked forward to God reassembling the nation of Israel after the exile in Babylon, and he cites a dozen or so passages, all of which use either episunagain or its compounded cognate and synonym sunagain. They also warn, says Wanamaker, of the assembling of the nations in judgment, and he cites Joel chapter 3 verse 2. And he continues, Since the followers of Jesus were a scattered group who could not come together as one single community, it became part of the eschatological hope of the early Christians that the coming of the day of the Lord, they would be gathered together from the four corners of the earth to enter their inheritance in God's dominion. So, when Paul speaks of being gathered together, he's using a sort of Gentile shorthand speaking to the largely Gentile church in terms which avoid direct reference to the Old Testament, and events which Gentile Thessalonians would know nothing about. But those interests are obviously in the background of his assertion. He's appealing to the Old Testament, if not in so many words. According to Paul, there was someone in the congregation, who's not identified, teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. And this greatly alarmed and unsettled a number of people in the church and it's not hard to understand why. If the day of the Lord had indeed come and gone, then those left behind had missed out on their deliverance from the day of wrath, as Paul has promised. But as Leon Morris points out, Paul does not engage these folks, as he's just quoting, by pontificating, but by making a request of his friends. So speaking to brothers, he cautions them respectfully, do not be shaken or alarmed, or confused in their understanding about any report you hear 
which supposedly comes from us, that is, from Paul and his co-senders. What might that report be? It certainly did not come from Paul, and he indicates that it might have come in the form of a prophecy, which is significant in light of his prior instruction to the Thessalonians not to quench the Spirit, nor despise prophecies, back in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 to 21. But Paul also added that it was necessary to test such prophecies, which points us in the direction that this had not been done as he had instructed them. The prophecy might have been false or otherwise misinterpreted. F.F. Bruce points out, quoting, Discrimination was necessary, and nowhere more so than with prophecies relating to future events. And he's absolutely right. The situation in Thessalonica is not that different from our own. As Green wisely cautions us, and I'm quoting again, we might caution modern Christians to understand that the message of every radio or television preacher, and I'd add podcaster, or even every person who stands behind a pulpit, needs to be examined through the lens of apostolic teaching as contained in Holy Scripture. And I say, Amen to that. Paul speaks of the possibility that it was a spoken word, or a letter purporting to have come from him, of the, did you hear what Paul said, variety? Perhaps the prophecy causing so much trouble was transcribed into the form of a written epistle, claiming to be from Paul, or approved by Paul, or his co-senders, but which, as a matter of fact, did not come from him. And that might explain why Paul adds his signature to the end of this letter as a sign of its authenticity. This letter, the second letter to the Thessalonians, comes from Paul. It's got his John Henry at the end. The bottom line is, we don't know who the speaker of the prophecy was, nor do we know the author of the offending epistle and how they're connected. All we can say is that it did not come from Paul, and this word was incorrect in its assertion that the day of the Lord had already come. That day had not come for reasons Paul is about to spell out. In verses 3 through 4, Paul cautions the Thessalonians about accepting untested prophecies that might be filled with error. And so he urges them, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There are a number of important issues raised by the Apostle, and we will address them in order. But let's not miss the obvious point Paul is making in answer to the confusion among the Thessalonians. The day of the Lord has not yet come. For starters, Paul's discussion of this mysterious figure resounds with echoes from the Old Testament especially from the book of Daniel. As Gerhardus Voss puts it, quoting, No clearly traceable and safe road leads back into the past to discover the man of sin except that via the prophecy of Daniel. A second point is that Paul's caution about the possibility of deception is likely a reference to his exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19-21, to not to quench the spirit nor despise prophecies, while at the same time, to carefully test all such prophecies. Apparently, the Thessalonians have accepted this erroneous word, purported to have come from Paul, without sufficient testing. 
Third, Paul is emphatic that the day of the Lord cannot come until the rebellion, the apostasy, occurs and the man of sin is revealed. This man of sin, literally the anomia, the man of lawlessness, is the son of destruction, who opposes God and who exalts himself against all other proper objects of worship. This figure will take his seat in the temple, which is a matter of great debate, and proclaims himself to be God. When these points are taken collectively, this indicates the supreme manifestation of evil is an individual and the ultimate threat to the people of God and to the present fulfillment of the Lord's redemptive purposes. The man of lawlessness is yet to come, because presently restrained. And when this restraint is lifted, he will appear only to be destroyed by Jesus at his parousia. This evil figure is often associated with the final end times Antichrist as the personification of evil. So we begin by considering the Old Testament background, which is significant and provides the biblical context and the categories for what Paul is now disclosing in this chapter. J. E. H. Thompson's summary of the Old Testament data about the Antichrist is a great place to begin, and so I'm quoting. As in the Old Testament, the doctrine concerning Christ was only suggested, not developed. So it is with the doctrine of the Antichrist. That the Messiah should be the divine Logos, the only adequate expression of God, was merely hinted at, not stated. So the Antichrist was exhibited as the opponent of God, rather than of his anointed. In the historical books of the Old Testament, Belial is used as of a personal opponent of the Lord. Thus the shamefully wicked are called in the authorized version, that is the King James, sons of Belial, in the appeals to 1 Samuel 1.16. Modern versions translate the expression in an abstract sense. Base fellows, scoundrels, wicked men, says Thompson. In Daniel 7, 7 and following, he says there's a description of the great heathen empire, represented by a beast with ten horns. Its full antagonism to God expressed in a little eleventh horn, which had a mouth speaking great things, and made war with the saints. Verses 8 and 21 of Daniel chapter 7. He was to be destroyed by the Ancient of Days, says Thompson, and his kingdom was given to a son of man. Verses 9 through 14. Similar yet differing in many points is the description of Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel 8, 9-12, and 23-25. through 25. And that's the end of a lengthy but important quote. Another important treatment of the biblical and historic background to the notion of an end-times personification of evil is found in Wilhelm Bousset's noted study, The Antichrist Legend, published in 1896. F.F. Bruce very capably summarizes Bousset's lengthy study as follows. So this is a quote from Bruce summarizing Bousset's book, The Antichrist Legend. Quote, Antichrist would appear among the Jews after the fall of Rome, proclaiming his divine status and installing his cult in the Jerusalem temple. He would himself be a Jew, born of the tribe of Dan, which is an idea based on Genesis 49.17, Deuteronomy 33.22, and Jeremiah 8.16. Elijah would appear and denounce him, and would be put to death for his pains. Antichrist would reign for three and a half years, 
True believers, refusing to give him the worship he demanded, would seek refuge in the wilderness and be pursued by him there. But when they are at the point of being wiped out, he is destroyed by the intervention of God, who may use an agent such as Michael the Archangel or the Messiah of David's line. According to Bisset, then, among the Jews of Paul's day, there was a vague but popular notion of some sort of an evil figure who would appear in a yet future period, very possibly at the beginning of the Messianic Age. And such expectations centered around a coming Messiah and his foe, the personification of evil in a single individual who would himself be an apostate Jew. Little is made of Daniel 9, 24-27, which is a standard text used by dispensationalists to support their doctrine of Antichrist, along with a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and tying him to a future 70th week, the so-called seven-year tribulation period. Such Jewish expectation forms the background for the New Testament revelation, which in many ways is the amplification of limited Old Testament data regarding this final foe of Yahweh and his Messiah. There is evidence that the New Testament teaching regarding this figure involves the correction of popular misguided notions concerning this evil personage, as seen, for example, in the book of Jude, verses 14 to 15 and 17 to 19. New Testament writers, especially Paul, allude to Daniel's vision, leading F.F. Bruce to conclude, Antichrist's expectation was held among Jews and Christians alike. Moving on, then, to address Paul's caution about the possibility of deception among the Thessalonians, it seems that Paul did not know the source of this erroneous teaching. His assertion, let no one deceive you in any way, does not specify who this might be, only that it was an intentional act of deception. It seems reasonable to conclude that if Paul knew who it was, he could identify the party by name as he does on occasion in his later epistles, when, for example, in 2 Timothy 2.14, he names Alexander the coppersmith. But the source was likely credible, or else the Thessalonians would not have been taken in by it. Paul corrects this deceptive error when he affirms, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That statement clears up any confusion in Thessalonica about whether or not the day of the Lord had already come. It had not. The day cannot come until the first of two related signs come to pass, the rebellion or the apostasy. This rebellion comes first, that is, before the day of the Lord, and is connected to a second event, the man of sin, about whom we will have more to say shortly. Paul will go into some detail about this lawless one, but he doesn't say much about the rebellion. Gene Green does point out, however, that part of the Jewish eschatological expectation was that before the end there would be an apostasy against God. And he cites a number of apocryphal writings from the book of Enoch, from 4th Ezra, and others. And he says this is a perspective that appears again in the teaching of Jesus, and here he cites Matthew 24, verses 11-13 through from the Olivet Discourse. One reason for this scant information about this is the Apostle may be referring back to his previous teaching regarding a coming rebellion. As Leon Morris notes, quoting, The term rendered rebellion is sometimes used of a political or military rebellion. 
the characteristic thought of the Bible is that God rules. Thus the word is appropriate for a rebellion against this rule. In part, rebellion points to this sort of thing. It includes the idea of forsaking one's former allegiance. Morris goes on. But it is not so much forsaking one's first love and drifting into apathy that is meant for setting oneself actively in opposition to God. It is the supreme effort of Satan and his minions to which the word directs us. Paul does not speak of a rebellion as though introducing the topic for the first time, but of the rebellion, that is, the well-known rebellion, one about which he had already instructed them. The word translated as rebellion in the ESV, apostasia, appears in only one other place in the New Testament, Acts 21.21, where we read the following, And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. So for a Jew, to apostatize was to forsake Moses and Jewish custom. But a similar idea also appears in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul tells Timothy to expect an end times defection from among the faithful, people who embrace false doctrine of satanic origin. Yet another caution regarding apostasy is given to us by the author of Hebrews. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. That's from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. An end times rebellion then was part of Jewish expectation. And both Jesus and Paul expect that there will be deserters from the ranks of those who, for a time, profess to follow Jesus. As G. K. Beale points out, quoting, such a meaning is apparent because of the immediate context of false teaching, verses one and two and nine to twelve of Second Thessalonians two, and the clear allusions to Daniel's prediction of an end time opponent who will bring about a large scale compromise of faith among God's people. End of quote. In Paul's warning to the Thessalonians regarding this coming rebellion, the action of the rebels in deserting Christ is of such magnitude and scope that it is a clear sign that the end, parousia, is near. So Paul issues his warning with a twofold purpose. The first is that the Thessalonians will be put to ease by learning that the day of the Lord had not yet come. And the second is to exhort them to be watchful regarding the warning to be on guard for such a rebellion. And again, remember, it is Jesus who reminds us that God's elect will persevere to the end and be saved, and those who are not, will not. As to Paul's next point, well, first comes the rebellion, and then comes the revelation of the man of lawlessness. The one is directly connected to the other, either as preparation for the man of sin's coming, or as a consequence of the apostasy. Paul's man of sin is clearly an eschatological personification of evil of some sorts, since, as the apostle repeatedly asserts, he will appear. According to Gerhardus Voss, quoting, But however striking these prophetic antecedents and literary dependencies may seem, 
The chief question remains how Paul for himself conceived of this mysterious power, that of lawlessness. First of all, its personality, while not explicitly confirmed, is throughout assumed. It is true, the collective abstract movement connected with his appearance teaches that more than a single person is involved, but most assuredly a personal leader of the movement, and that a human personality is involved. We may take for granted then, concludes Voss, the Antichrist will be a human person. Not only will there be a personification of evil at some point, but the specific nature of his evil actions is also spelled out by Paul, as once again Voss summarizes in quoting Gerhardus Voss again. Thus as Apocalypsis is ascribed to the man of sin, verse 6, to the end that he may be revealed in his own season, and verse 8, and then shall be revealed the lawless one, in verse 9 we read of his parousia, whose parousia is according to the working of Satan, with all powers and lying wonders. Says Voss, his whole manner of working is described in terms that compel us to think of something parallel to the gospel propaganda carried on by the servants of the true God. His whole manner of working is described in terms that compel us to think of something parallel to the gospel message carried on by the servants of the true Christ. The man of sin, concludes Voss, is the irreligious and anti-religious and anti-messianic subject par excellence. As Christ is to be revealed at his second advent, so too the man of sin is revealed at his appearing. This connects the man of lawlessness appearance directly to Christ's return. And the use of apocalypsis for both Jesus and the man of sin demonstrates that his actions are a parody of Jesus' redemptive work. And the connection is hardly accidental. Paul's image of the man of sin is a messianic imitator, and that should probably be seen in light of John's Antichrist motif as found in his epistles when John declares that anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is an Antichrist, according to 2 John 1 verse 7. Paul's man of sin refers to a yet future revelation, while John's Antichrist were a present reality even toward the end of the first century. Yet there's a common theme in both instances, religious opposition to the redemptive purposes of God, rather than the imposition of political power. The threat, depicted by John and Paul, is internal, terracy, and deception, not external as would be the case with coercive police and economic power associated with state opposition to Christ's church, as is the case with the beast of the book of Revelation. F.F. F. Bruce, whose fine essay on Antichrist is considered definitive on the topic, draws a direct connection between Paul's remarks here, John's Antichrists, and the beasts of the book of Revelation, which, when taken together, to use B.B. Warfield's term, form a composite photograph of three individuals which we now commonly speak of as the Antichrist. Bruce writes, Antichrist appears again in the New Testament in the Apocalypse, although he is not called by that name there. The beast from the abyss which kills the two witnesses of God in Revelation 11 verse 7 is introduced more formally in Revelation 13. In the first ten verses of that chapter we can hardly fail to recognize a more 
detailed description of the man of lawlessness of 2 Thessalonians 2, although in Revelation there is some oscillation between the anti-Christian power and the individual in whom that power is vested for the time being. But for John of Patmos, the anti-Christian power is unambiguously the Roman Empire, which, with Nero's assault on the Christians of Rome in the aftermath of the Great Fire of AD 64, had embarked on the intermittent course of persecution of the Church, which was to last two and a half centuries. There is no question that Rome and its imperial cult, emperor worship, serves as the background for evil portrayed by John in the imagery he uses of the beast. This is also likely the case for Paul's man of sin, although political motifs are indeed present in connection with the two beasts of Revelation 13, the one from the land and the one from the sea. The composite photograph of combining all these together is of a primarily religious foe, but who may direct state power against Christ's church and God's people by focusing upon stopping the spread of the gospel. When the man of lawlessness appears, he reveals himself to be the archenemy of Jesus Christ and his people, which confirms the rather obvious connection between this individual and the end-times figure whom we commonly identify as the Antichrist. Paul identifies him as a son of destruction, who opposes God, who exalts himself over against all other objects of worship. Paul says he will take his seat in the temple and proclaim himself to be God. And when the rebellion occurs, he will show himself to be the chief rebel. In verse 4, Paul lays out his list of offenses. The man of lawlessness opposes the proper worship of God by exalting himself and seeking the homage which rightly belongs to God. The Old Testament echoes here are loud and they're obvious. His activities are empowered by Satan, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, whom Paul describes as the adversary in 1 Timothy 5.14. But there can be little doubt that Paul has in mind Daniel 11, 36-37, a prophetic vision in which Daniel foretells of the coming of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, circa 167 B.C., who, in his persecution of the Jews and desecration of the Jerusalem temple, serves as a type of the future Antichrist. In Daniel's vision, the prophet speaks of this evil personage in the following terms, and I'm quoting from Daniel 11:36-37. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. This figure is the blasphemer supreme, exalting himself over all others. And as Morris puts it briefly, he makes an explicit claim to deity. He places himself above all false gods, all idols, and anyone who dares challenge him. He even claims for himself the authority of the true and living God, seeking the worship of the earth's inhabitants. It may very well be that Paul has in mind the recently deceased Roman emperor Caligula, or Gaius, 
who claimed to be divine and who ordered that his image be erected in the Jerusalem temple in AD 40, but which never came to pass since Caligula died shortly after in AD 41, and his order was in countermanded. So Caligula, along with other Roman emperors, claimed divinity and demanded the worship of God's people. When Paul was in the city, there was a temple in Thessalonica dedicated to the imperial cult, or to the worship of the emperors. And it's hard to imagine that Paul does not have the imperial cult in mind when warning the Thessalonians about this coming individual. Well, as we have seen, Paul writes his second Thessalonian letter to correct an error spreading through the congregation which taught that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul will have none of it. In verses 1 to 12 of chapter 2, he informs the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord cannot come until a great apostasy occurs and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed. We've discussed the Old Testament background, especially the relationship of the book of Daniel, to Paul's concerns here. We've discussed what such an apostasy entails, and we'll discuss whether or not Paul is speaking of this occurring in the church or in the Jerusalem temple in connection with the events of AD 70. Before we get back to our text, I want to take a minute to thank those of you who listen to the podcast regularly. If you're enjoying the Blessed Hope podcast and our deep dive into the biblical text and you'd like to help the podcast grow, there are a couple of things you can do that are really helpful. You can leave a positive rating and or a comment on your podcast feed, and you can recommend the Blessed Hope Podcast to your friends by announcing new episodes as they're released through your own social media accounts. So please encourage your friends to listen and let them know about these new episodes as they come out. There are lots of people who are interested in the end times and biblical prophecy, so season two of the Blessed Hope Podcast might be of interest to such people. Tell them about the podcast. Word of mouth and personal recommendation coming from people they know are the best way for a very niche podcast such as The Blessed Hope to continue to grow its audience. As always, show notes for this episode and all previous episodes on Galatians, which was our Season 1, and Paul's Thessalonian Letters, our Season 2, are available at the Riddle blog, kimriddlebarger.com all lowercase, one word, kimriddlebarger.com. You can find these episodes under the Blessed Hope Podcast tab, which is located at the top of the page. And you can also find information about my books on eschatology. I've written on this extensively. My first book was A Case for All Millennialism, and I have an entire book devoted to The Man of Sin, published by Baker in 2006. And you can find information about those two books on the blog. There are also a large number of free resources on eschatology at the Riddle blog. These are located under the Amillennialism tab, which is also at the top of the page. There are a number of essays and free audio lectures and 25 years of sermons available as well. So go to the Riddle blog and check it out, surf the site, and have fun as you're doing so. Here's now the familiar plea. Please read through the two Thessalonian letters regularly as you go through this series. My goal, the reason why I do this podcast, 
is to give you the background information necessary to read and then get the most out of these two very important but overlooked epistles. So get in the habit of reading the biblical text. Sit down, take up and read, or get out your phone, find a Bible app that you can listen to and hear these books read aloud. But get in the habit of doing that entire books in one sitting. And so with that, let's get back to our text, chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, and consider carefully Paul's warning about the man of sin and his role in opposing the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, picking up where we left off, F.F. F. Bruce sees yet another important theological connection between Paul's words here and John's epistles. He writes, I'm quoting, This suggests that he, the man of sin, is in some sense a rival Messiah, the Antichristos of 1 John 2.18, where John writes, You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Says Bruce, His messianic parody as Antichrist could very well be in the background of Paul's prediction that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. End of quote. This claim to deity would make perfect sense to Paul's Thessalonian audience who lived under the thumb of self-proclaimed deified Caesars. And these Christians now find themselves being persecuted for turning from idols which included images of self-deified Roman rulers. The blasphemies of the man of sin depicted by Paul also reflect a number of predictions found in Daniel's prophecy. And so Voss writes, and I'm quoting, The mouth speaking great things from Daniel 7, 8, and 20 is a striking pre-analogy to all the blasphemy which the apostle in advance charges the man of sin. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 4, Voss cites the passage, He that opposes and exalts himself against all that is called God or worshipped, so as to sit in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God, reminds us of verse 24 in the same chapter of Daniel. The doing according to his will, and magnifying himself in Daniel 8 verse 4, finds its echo in the trait of anti-divine overbearing, which has so vividly set its impress upon Paul's description. The little horn that came up in the midst of four notable horns, into which the great horn of the goat was broken, likewise proceeds to blasphemous acts, so far even as to take away from the prince of the host the most sacred religious apparatus and cast down the place of the sanctuary. And he cites Daniel 8.14, which bears a striking likeness to the apostles' description in Thessalonians, the abomination that makes desolate, above commented on in Daniel 11.31, is entirely aligned with the features that are here named. Like Bruce, Voss too sees a direct relationship between Paul's man of sin and the Antichrist described by John in his epistles, as well as in the prophecies of Daniel previously mentioned. Says Voss, quoting, There may be no exact resemblance in the behavior of pagan tyrants to Antichrist setting himself up in the temple of God as a self-deifier, but as between type and anti-type, the correspondence is close enough. What is taught in literal terms about the Antichrist in the New Testament thus acquires a direct continuity with Old Testament predictions. 
As you may know, there is significant debate among interpreters about what Paul means when he speaks of the blasphemous behavior of this man of sin taking place in the temple of God. Is Paul referring to the second temple in Jerusalem, which was still standing when Paul wrote both of his epistles to the Thessalonians? Well, this is the majority interpretation. Or is Paul referring to the church as the temple of God in an eschatological sense, since the church is composed of living stones and indwelt by God's Spirit. I find Beale's case compelling when he contends that 2 Thessalonians 2.3, quoting, is about a massive apostate movement toward the end of history in, in the church and not in Israel, is apparent from the phrase God's temple in chapter 2, verse 4. End of quote. If Paul is speaking about an end times event, then he cannot be speaking of the Jerusalem temple, which was destroyed in AD 70. Now, as mentioned, there are a number of competing interpretations of what Paul means when he speaks of the temple, and it's a good idea, I think, to briefly describe them here. Preterists tie Paul's man of sin to events associated with the Jewish rejection of the gospel and the desecration of the Jewish temple in AD 70. Futurists, which includes dispensationalists, see this as a prophecy of a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem at the time of the end. Historicists understand Paul's reference to the temple as a reference to the church, and this identification explains why historicists have so often connected the man of sin directly to the papacy. Although Beals is a minority report, this refers to the church, his case is pretty compelling and it can be set forth as follows. According to Beale, the word temple, naon, is found nine other times in the New Testament outside of Second Thessalonians, where it is almost always used of Christ or the church. In the five other times Paul uses the word, it doesn't refer to a literal temple in Israel, past or future, and he cites 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 6.19, 2 Corinthians 6.16, Ephesians 2.21, and 2 Thessalonians 2.4. In both Matthew and John, the word is used of the temple which will be destroyed before Christ raises it up, or the true temple which is his body, Matthew 26.61 and John 2.21. Paul refers to believers as constituting the temple of God because we are in union with Christ through faith. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-8, Paul depicts Christians in a manner which parallels the passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 18-19, when Paul speaks of the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, although the word temple is not specifically used. Paul is making the point that the people of God constitute the dwelling place of God's Spirit. And then in Revelation 11, verses 1-7, the saints are pictured as the sanctuary. And in Revelation 13, 6, the beast attacks the people of God, described there as the tabernacle. So, when taken together, this is strong evidence in favor of the view that Paul is not referring to the Jerusalem temple, but to the church. There are also a number of important redemptive historical shifts which have taken place after the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, followed by Pentecost fifty days later, which underlie Paul's two-age eschatology. A broad redemptive historical perspective supports the interpretation that the temple spoken here by Paul is the church at the end of the age 
not the temple in Jerusalem. We can enumerate these points briefly. First, after Christ's death and resurrection, true Israel is Christ and his people. You can cross-reference Galatians 6.16 for that point. Second, Christ's people are now his temple, indwelt by his Spirit. This can be seen on the day of Pentecost. The outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2.14-41 is the reality that had been foreshadowed by the Spirit filling the tabernacle in Exodus 40, verses 34-38. Third, both national Israel as the covenant community, along with the temple as the place of sacrifice, have come to an end. Hebrews 7.11-10.22, that long section there, and also in Luke 21, verse 6. When Christ dies upon the cross, the veil in the Jerusalem temple was torn from top to bottom. The temple is now Ichabod. Its glory has departed. No believers remain present there. Neither is God's Spirit present as he'd been before. The preterist position that this is about events of 8070 has some significant weaknesses on the other hand. In order to fall away, the people who must fall must be part of the believing covenant community in which the lawless will make his entrance so to deceive and blaspheme. In defending the preterist interpretation of this passage, Ken Gentry asserts that those who fall away are Jews who rebel apostasia against Roman political authority, which led to Rome's military intervention and the subsequent devastation of Israel in AD 70. Gentry sees in this apostasy a religious element as well, Israel's rejection of the Messiah. But that does not fit at all with Paul's depiction of an eschatological temple, the church, at the end of the age, when the man of sin is revealed unto destruction at Christ's return. And how can an apostate people, the Jews, fall from the Orthodox faith when they're already apostate? Such apostasy requires professing believers falling away from Christ's church in massive numbers, not Jews who have already rejected their Messiah. The scene depicted by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 is one in which the man of lawlessness, who mimics Christ, deceives people within the believing community, the church, through satanically empowered signs and wonders, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. Nowhere does Paul say the man of sin does this in the old covenant community Israel with its temple, although that was part of Jewish expectation, which Paul now tweaks in light of Christ's messianic mission. Jesus, too, spoke of such an apostasy as one of the signs of the impending judgment upon Israel now certain. In Matthew 24, 10-12, Jesus warns of a time when many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Such signs were not only warnings to the apostles, since the apostles are representatives of the church, they're also spoken to us as well. So this is not just a warning to the Thessalonians, it's a warning to all Christians about what must happen before the Lord Jesus returns. First there must be a rebellion, and then the revelation of the man of sin. And therefore when Paul warns the Thessalonians of someone to come, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, Paul's referring to an end-times individual who will commit this heinous act in Christ's church 
not in the Jerusalem Temple past in AD 70 or in the future, i.e. in a rebuilt temple. This despicable act, this blasphemy, is in some way connected to a final apostasy which immediately precedes the final judgment. As Paul has taught us back in verses 8-10 through 10 of the first chapter of this epistle, and as he says explicitly here in chapter 2, verse 8. While the events of Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 B.C. and Titus's subsequent onslaught against Jerusalem and its temple in AD 70 fulfill in part the various prophecies of Daniel 11, Paul telescopes those provisional fulfillments of Daniel's prophecy, which is why Herman Ritterboss can speak of a proleptic prophetic character of such prophecies because they point to what will happen in Christ's church immediately before the end of the age. A great apostasy is going to occur in the church in connection with the revelation of the lawless one who will exalt himself over God and demand to be worshipped. And that seems to indicate that the series of wannabe antichrists described by John in his epistles will indeed give way to a final antichrist once God's restraint is lifted. Paul is clear that this occurs at the time of the end. In fact, in verse 5, he asks the Thessalonians, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? The obvious answer to this question is, apparently not. You don't remember these things. Somewhere along the line, the Thessalonians let a false report about the Lord obscure what the apostle had told them about this matter previously. So that brings us to the end of part one, a true cliffhanger. So join us next time for our ongoing study of 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, and we'll take up what comes in verses 6 and 7, Paul's discussion of this mysterious restrainer, and then we'll tackle the timing of these events yet again, AD 70, or the end of the age. And we'll consider how Paul's discussion in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, relates to John's discussion regarding the binding of Satan and his release from the abyss in Revelation chapter 20. Are in fact 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12 and Revelation 20 parallel passages? Well, we'll debate that, look at the evidence, and then we'll draw some conclusions about how we ought to think regarding the doctrine of the Antichrist. Well, thanks for listening, and until next time, Maranatha, the Lord come.